for the reading of God's word. Our sermon text this morning is James 1, 19 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not rattle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word. You can be seated and we'll pray together. Father, we come to your word now because you have revealed yourself fully and sufficiently and for, for all that we need. So I pray that you would provide for us this morning what we need, even if and especially if that, that comes into conflict with what we want. I pray that your word would bind us up, break us down, comfort us, convict us. Whatever it is that we need this morning, I pray that you would provide it. We're trusting that you will provide it through your word. May your spirit open our hearts to receive your word. And as we consider this morning, may we truly leave this place, not just as hearers of your word, but as doers. We can only do that in the power of your spirit, so help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I am, I am really excited to be in the book of James. I'm, I'm excited to continue. We began last week by looking at the first 18 verses in James chapter one, and then today we'll be looking at the rest of chapter one, begin chapter two next week. Uh, if uh, you didn't catch it, there was an email sent out early last week that uh, shared the entire sermon schedule. You could see it. There's, I shared some sermon notes. I'll start sharing a link to the sermon notes uh, the day after, hopefully in the future. Once we, we kind of get things rolling again, we can get those sermon notes to you. The goal is to get the sermon notes to you uh, before Sunday so that as you're reading the passage and you're praying, you can actually see uh, what we're going to be emphasizing this morning. And it would also give uh, some of you who are like, I miss the notes, I miss the notes, um, a chance to, oh, well, I'll speak louder now, a chance to, uh, we good, David? I'll pull this one back up just in case. 
a chance to print them out if you, uh, if you need that. See, the problem with speaking really loudly is when it kicks back in, boom, it just like kills you. So I'll try to be careful with that. I'll talk loud some and then I'll just kind of quiet down, maybe try to, try to catch it. Um, but uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to get those notes out to you so that you can see that, uh, have the notes with you throughout, throughout the weekend before you come into the service. Uh, but if not, if not, am I in this one? Okay, yeah, that's good. That's good. That'll work. Uh, if, if not, you know, you just want to continue. Uh, uh, just so you know, I didn't just get rid of the notes because Landon was gone and I just hated the notes. Okay, I don't hate notes. All right? I preach from notes. I, I send out the notes. It's not, that's not the, the issue. My hope is, my hope is that as, as we're sitting under the word this morning, that your attention is fixed on the word itself and that you are hearing me as I'm preaching to you, but I would rather you be fixated on the word itself than my particular interpretation or my particular notes. So even though I think that's valuable, um, I, I do want us to focus our attention on the word this morning. Um, all that to say, I am, I am really excited to walk through the book of James because as we considered last week, uh, James is one of those books that is highly practical and its ethical demands that it, that it places on those who are already in Christ. It, it asks us and, and challenges us not just with what we believe or what we know, but with what we do. James even compares, it's like, what good is it just to know? What good is it just to believe even? Because the demons know, the demons believe, but they do not respond with faith and obedience to the word and to the Lord. And so, so I'm excited to be walking through this book. Um, you know, recently... Uh, this, this past week, I actually had an opportunity to, to meet with Will Rambo, who's one of the, the lead pastors at the Orchard here in town, another church here in town. And uh, he was just meeting with me to encourage me. It was an excellent meeting. Uh, love Will. Uh, but he shared something with me that I actually didn't know, um, that there are around 25,000 unchurched people living in Tupelo. 25,000. It certainly isn't from a lack of churches, Right. Because I think there are probably 25,000 churches in Tupelo as well, you know. It feels that way. You can't, you can't drive down any street without seeing a church. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually even difficult. Like, I always thought when we moved to this location, it would be really easy to describe where we are. But if you're like, hey, we're on the church on the hill on McCullough close to the, the Reed House. It's like, man, that's really clear. But it's like, okay, is it the old First Christian Church or is it the Lutheran Church or is it the Methodist Church across the, the way over there? I mean, they're just, there are a lot of churches. So it's not from a lack of churches that there are unchurched people. Why do you think? Why do you think there are 25,000 unchurched people in a highly Bible church saturated city? I don't know. I've only lived here three and a half years. I don't, obviously, don't, not really familiar with the history. I just learned this, this fact around 25,000 unchurched people living in Tupelo. Here are a few thoughts, and this isn't just like specific to Tupelo, this is anywhere there are unchurched people. Maybe, maybe three reasons that there are unchurched people in Tupelo. One, there are people, believe it or not, in Tupelo who have not heard the gospel. Okay? Just because it's the Bible Belt, and just because there are a lot of churches, and just because there are a lot of Christians, and just because Christianity is really positive here, doesn't mean that people have actually heard the true gospel. There are people who have not heard the gospel and have not responded in faith to Jesus. There are lost people in our city who don't know the gospel. That's one reason that there are unchurched people in Tupelo. Another reason, there are people in Tupelo who claim to be Christians, but they don't follow Jesus. We see, we see that all the time. 
if, if they were asked, like if they were just updating their Facebook and they were, they were going through the options and they saw religion, religious preference or whatever, they would, they would choose Christian. Or if you ask them, they would say that they are Christian. Even, though, even if they haven't been in a church in 30 years, you know, they're going to identify as, as Christian. So we have a lot of people who are identifying as Christians. Maybe, maybe it's cultural. I don't, I don't know. But they're not actually following Jesus, so they don't join a church. Or if they are members of a church, they haven't gathered with that church in years. So you have people who have never heard the gospel, never believed. You have people who, I don't know, maybe they grew up in church, or maybe they just want to identify as Christians, but they're not in churches. All right, then there's a third group, in my, in my opinion, and there are probably more. This third group I interact with uh, quite often, so I can speak with certainty to a number of people who fit in this category. There are people in our city who see people who claim to be Christians but don't follow Jesus. So they themselves are not claiming to be Christians. They're not claiming to be Christians. And the reason that they give is because they see people who are Christians but they're not following Jesus. There's no identifiable change in their lives at all. And so for them, what good is it to be a Christian? They want no part of the church for that reason. So I believe there are people in our city who have never heard the gospel. I believe there are people in our city who claim to be Christians, but they don't follow Jesus. And then I believe there are people in our city who see people like that. And that's the reason that they are not a part of churches. They don't see genuine Christianity. They, they see hypocrisy. They see a lack of consistency between belief and action. A lot of people, you know, millennials, you know, a lot of people in our city that I've talked with recently, even you take it to the political realm, you know. Joe Biden changes his opinion on the Hyde Amendment, and you would think people who who lean more liberal would, would love that. But here's what they hate, the inconsistency. He waffled on an issue. So he'll waffle on issues in the future. Okay, so when they see inconsistency in you, that is more repulsive to them than the actual doctrine itself. We may think that people are opposed to the Christian message, but in some of the experiences I've had in evangelism in this city over the past year, they're tracking with me with the gospel and the Christian message. They might disagree with certain things or not like certain things, but they're tracking with me, and then they meet a Christian. They're looking for something genuine. They're looking for consistency. They don't want to see hypocrisy. To them, Christianity doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem real. You can be a Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever you want to be. You know, atheist, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If Christianity doesn't seem real, why bother? James's concern in our passage this morning is over genuine Christianity genuine Christianity. The question he's essentially answering is what makes a person a true Christian? What makes a person a true Christian? What is the path to genuine Christianity? And I, I think there are three sections to this passage. So I have three, three points for you to help us answer that question. What is the path to genuine Christianity? And all re relates back to a faith that works. So, so there are three parts to this. First, true faith is a gift. Okay, 
True faith is a gift. We're going to see that going all the way back to verse 17 through verse 21. True faith is a gift. The second, second observation we're going to make is that true faith is active. So true faith is a gift. Secondly, true faith is active. And then third and finally, true faith is both public and private. And it's in these three realms that we understand what a Christian truly is. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're considering the faith, this is an excellent Sunday for you to be here because we are going to be walking through what a genuine and true Christian should be. And if you are a Christian, it's equally important for you. So three things we're going to emphasize. Faith is a gift. Faith is active. Faith is both public and private. All right, let's begin. Uh, True faith is a gift. So one of the most important questions you can ask as you consider Christianity or if you are already in, it's a great reflective question. How do you get in? Okay, how do you get in on Christianity? How, or if you are a Christian, how did you get in? How, how do you become a Christian? And the simple answer that James gives us here is that God must bring us in. And that's where Christianity is unique and it differs from most world religions and philosophies and worldviews. God is the one who must act first in order to bring us into the religion. We don't do something first in order to get in. God must act first. Let's, let's look at James 1, verse 17. We, we touched on verse 17 last week, and I intentionally last week did not preach on verse 18 because it fits so well with our passage this morning. So in James 1, 17, we read, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, so every good thing comes from God, and everything from God is good. And then in verse 18, we see one of these amazing gifts from our Father who is good. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, he brought us forth. A theological word for that is regeneration. He brought us forth. The only way for us to get in on Christianity is for God to bring us forth. He has to bring us into it. He has to change the disposition of our hearts in order for us to get in in the first place. God has to act first. Becoming a Christian is not achievement through good works. Okay, it's not achievement through good works or obedience. Becoming a Christian is reception of a gift of God's grace. It's the reception of a gift of God's grace. The only criteria that you need to meet, if you're considering Christianity, the only criteria you need to meet to, be, to get in, to get in on what Jesus has done and what he has to offer, is to be a sinner. That's the criteria. You have to be a sinner. There's not a list I can give you of things that you need to do in order to become a Christian or be reconciled to God because there's nothing you could do. You are a sinner. Hey, there I am. This is is fun. Yeah, he started talking about sin. He's like, let's crank him up. Yeah. You make sure y'all in the back hear this. The only criteria you need to meet in order to get in on what Jesus has to offer is to be a sinner. You can't do anything else. You can't, you can't earn your way in. You can't clean yourself up. 
You can't. Not like you shouldn't do it. It would be a waste of time. You can't. Try. Go ahead. It won't work. That's, that's not why we're in this room this morning. The only reason we're in this room and claiming to be followers of Jesus is because God brought us forth. He brought us in. How do we get in on Christianity? God has to do something. He has to bring us in. Now, more specifically, how does a person become a Christian? Okay, you recognize God has to do something. Well, do I not have any, like, recognition of this? Does it just happen to me? And I just, like, how do I know? Like, how do you know if you're a Christian or not? Because you have to do something. You don't earn your way in, but, I mean, you got to do something, right? Like, what, what is it? What, how do you become a Christian? And in verses 19 through 21, I'm going to be basically preaching them in the reverse order. James gives us a model. Okay, how do I become a Christian? First, God must give the gift of salvation. He must give the gift of salvation. So let's look at 19 through 21, and then we're gonna, we're gonna tackle it. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So he has these ethical commands at the, at the front end, and he's like, you don't need to, to be angry, the anger of man, you need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Why? Because, because anger, it does not produce the righteousness of God, and that is the goal. The goal of every Christian is to pursue the righteousness of God in our lives. And so then he says, therefore, he makes this conclusion, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So three steps. First, God must give the gift of, sam- of salvation. We saw it in verse 18. He brought us forth by the word of truth, the connection in verse 21. So turn away from wickedness, turn away from filthiness, and receive with meekness the implanted word. What is the implanted word? It is the word of truth by which God brought us Forth. So God must give the gift of salvation. How does he give it? He gives it in three ways. First, through the work of Jesus. God the Father sent his son Jesus to be righteous where we are not righteous in his life. He never sinned, lived a sinless life. He died for our sins. Our sins were counted to him, even though he was not a sinner and he was punished accordingly. He bore the full wrath of God in our place. He became our substitute and he atoned for for our sins so the work of Jesus how does that get applied to us how do we get in on it how do we get in on it not just the work of Jesus but through the word of the gospel the word of the gospel and that's where I want to draw a really important distinction because we use the word gospel so much the gospel is the message of salvation okay it is more accurate to say Jesus saves than the gospel saves Okay, Jesus saves. He is the one. He had to actually come to earth. He had to actually live a sinless life. He had to actually die on a cross, and he had to actually rise bodily from the, from the grave. He had to do that in order for you to be saved. That's what saves you. The way we experience it is through faith in the message of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So the work of Jesus, the word of the gospel At some point in time, if you're a Christian in this room, you heard the gospel. Someone shared it with you. When I I first believed the gospel, it happened at a VBS. One of my mentors now 
Uh, he was the youth pastor at our church at the time, and, and he shared the gospel at a VBS. And I heard it, and it made sense to me, and I was convicted of my sin, and I turned from my sin, and I believed in Jesus for the first time there. All of you who are Christians, you have a story like that. At some point, you heard the word of truth. At some point, you heard the word of the gospel. And it's through that message, it's through that word that God saves. That's why we evangelize. That's why we evangelize. Because it is through the word of truth. It is the implanted word that people receive so that they may be saved. So God gives the gift of salvation through the work of Jesus, through the word of the gospel, and through the work of the Spirit, the Spirit implanting the word of the gospel in our hearts and giving us a desire to receive it with faith. This is also why on Sunday mornings, I don't just gather my own thoughts. I don't just look at the newspapers and the headlines and and just what's going on in the world and think up some, some clever things to say to you. It's the word It's the word that saves. We proclaim the word because it is the means of salvation that God uses. So how do I become a Christian? First, God must give the gift of salvation. He does that through the work of his son, through the word of the gospel, and through the work of his spirit. Secondly, we must receive the gift of salvation. We have to receive it. It's not a work it's, it's as much a work as, as your kids work when they receive a gift that you give them on Christmas. It's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a work, okay? We must receive the gift of salvation. Now, how do we receive it? So verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In verse 21, we see that we receive with meekness the implanted word, this word that the Spirit implants within us. And we receive that in two ways, through repentance and through faith. Through repentance and faith. Look at, look at the beginning of verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The way, the way that James writes this tells us When you receive the word of the gospel, you do a complete 180 on your current lifestyle. You turn from your, however you are living that contradicts God's ways and God's word, you turn from that and you pursue his word and you pursue his ways. We... We... Okay. We (laughs) didn't want to pop on you. Okay. We leave, we leave our old lives behind completely and start following Jesus. So when God offers you the gift of salvation through the gospel of his son, the proper response to that is turning, turning from the way that you're currently living, turning from wickedness, turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. And what we learn and what we're going to see throughout this passage is that this isn't just something that happens one time. That is the new posture of a person who is in Christ. It is your posture for the rest of your life where you turn from sin and trust in Jesus. 
So you receive the gift of salvation through repentance and through faith. And then finally, this great promise, this great promise for everyone who who is given the gift of salvation from God the Father. And for everyone who receives that gift through repentance and faith, they will be saved. You will, you will be saved. The end of verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So, although the rest of this passage tells us that faith and new life in Christ must lead to action. Right here at the beginning, we see that faith and new life, they are primarily gifts from God. True faith is a gift of God's grace that changes our lives. This this word of the gospel that's implanted in our hearts, it gives us new life. So then, we're going to Go back up the passage to verse 19 and verse 20. So, we pursue righteousness. We repent. We turn from wickedness. We turn from our old ways. We turn from any way that contradicts God's word and God's will. And we pursue righteousness. And we pursue humility before God and others. Notice these these ethical commands. They, They are commands for humility and toward righteousness. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Pride feeds anger. Pride feeds our desire to speak quickly and rashly. But humility, humility encourages us and equips us to be quick to hear. And to wait and to be patient both before God's word and with one another. To be quick to hear the word, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. Why? Why why does James include this here in this, almost like in this sandwich of, of a discussion about salvation through the word? Because we are who we are. We are who we are, not by our own doing. When you realize that the only reason you are in Christ, the only reason you are a Christian, is because of what God has done for you and not what you have produced of your own good works. When you realize that faith is first a gift before it is power to obey, that it's first a gift, not something that you deserve or earn or conjured up, it's something that God has given to you. When you realize that, You can only boast in Christ. You cannot boast in yourself. And how could you, in pride, speak rashly to another fallen sinner who is saved by that same grace? How how could we be quick to speak to one another without first taking the time to listen and to be patient? Just because because someone sends you an email on Monday at 9 a.m. doesn't mean you have to reply by 9.15. Okay? Just just because someone texts you or you're in a conversation and they say something to you, whether it's challenging, whether it's confrontation, you can ask for a later meeting. You can say, I I need to go home and pray. I, I, I want to go home and pray. I want to go home and think about what you've said. Can we meet later for lunch this week? Be slow to speak. 
Be slow to anger and be quick to hear. Be quick. When you're quick to hear, you're patient in your hearing. When you're quick to hear, you give the person the benefit of the doubt. You wait and you listen and you consider and you reflect. Am am I hearing them rightly? You ask for clarification before rushing to judgment, before rushing to say something in return, and especially before rushing to anger. Why? Because the anger of man, which, which is rooted in pride, it does not produce the righteousness of God. And that's what we should all be after. When you realize faith is a gift, when you realize faith is a gift, it will produce the humility that you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So first, before we get into all the stuff that faith should do, you need to remember, or hear for the first time, that faith in God, faith in Jesus, it is a gift. All right, second, true faith is not just a gift. True faith is active. All right. First thing we need to say here. Actually, let's read the verses. So start in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Honestly, another thing I love about James, and you're going to probably prefer this, but we can just read it and go home. You know, like, what more needs to be said on these, these few verses? And I know what you're thinking. Amen, brother. Ain't, a, ain't one more thing that you need to say. Let's pray and go home. But let's, seriously, let's read this together. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So what we see here is that true faith is active. Faith that does not obey is a deceptive faith. Like, James is really strong in his wording here. He's saying to hear the word and not put what you hear into practice is to deceive yourself away from the faith. You're deceiving yourself. If you think you can believe in Jesus and follow him without obeying him, it's deception. He's telling us that obedience to God is what marks a child of God. That's what marks us as his children. That we don't just believe the right things. We do what he says. Our faith leads to action. Receiving the word of the gospel then involves hearing the word of the gospel. But not just hearing, but believing it. Receiving it by faith. Believing. So hearing and believing. But even more than that. Truly receiving the implanted word means hearing, believing, and doing. Doing the word. We we don't read the Bible just to know more stuff about God or or to, to have all the right answers. We read the Bible to do. How do you study the Bible? In search of meaning? In search of answers, how many of you begin your Bible study with one question, 
What can I do today? Lord, what can I do? Spirit, what can I do today? Show me in your word. Show me in your word what I can do today. Because, brothers and sisters, true faith is active. It works. It obeys. It puts into practice the commands and and expectations of us that we find in it. That's That's what true faith does. Who is a genuine Christian? Someone who truly believes the gospel and who truly acts according to the gospel. And you, you can't have one without the other. We're going to see that later in James 2 in a couple weeks. Well, let's look at his illustration. He has an illustration and then an exhortation from it, okay? So first we have the illustration. And I always love it whenever illustrations are in scripture because that just saves me the time. I don't have to think of one. James, James has one right here for us. He says in verse 23... For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So he paints a picture for us. You have, a, you have someone who, you have a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. So he's standing in front of a mirror, he's looking at his face. And then he looks at himself and he goes away and forgets what he was like. So... Here's a question for you. How often do you think about your appearance throughout the day? I mean, the question's not how much time do you spend on your appearance before the day starts. How, how often, just as you're going about your, whether you're you know, caring for children at home or you're going out to lunch with friends or you're at work, how often do you actually think about all the work you put in, you know, because, I mean, obviously I put in a ton of work on myself, you know what I mean? I mean but, you know, how, how, much, how much time do you spend thinking about what you saw in the mirror as you were getting ready this morning, for instance? How, since you've been sitting here, have you been thinking about it? No matter how much time you spend getting ready, you know, for the day, in front of a mirror, you probably don't think that much about your appearance throughout the day as you go about your day. You don't think much about it. It doesn't matter how much, the, the emphasis here is not how much time is spent in front of the mirror. It may be really quick and you move on, or you may spend hours in front of the mirror. But then you forget about it. You go about your day and it has no consequence. It has no consequence. You spend two seconds, you spend two hours. It has no consequence on how your day goes or what you do during the day. Those who only hear the word but don't do the word. That's what they're like. They look at the word. They think about the gospel. But then they go on about their day without giving it a second thought. They look deeply or shallowly into the Bible. But what they see, what they hear, doesn't really impact them as they go about their day. And again, Time is not what James is concerned with here. He's not concerned with time. He's concerned with effect. Okay, time's not the concern. Effect is you can study the Bible for two seconds or two hours in the morning and not put what you studied into practice. And if you're doing that, you are a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. If our faith isn't active in obedience to the word of the gospel we have received, it is useless. 
and he's going to say later, it is dead. So, if we are characterized by our lack of response to the gospel, here's the scary part. We have reason to question if we have ever received the gospel. I'll say that again. If we are characterized, characterized, I'm not talking about this morning or yesterday. If you could be characterized by your lack of response to the gospel, by your lack of response to the gospel, you have reason to question if you've ever received it in the first place. If you are a hearer and not a doer, you have to ask, he's drawing this connection, you have to ask yourself, did I ever receive it in the first place? Is it implanted in my heart? Those are diagnostic questions for us to ask. Are you like someone who just looks in the mirror and then forgets what they saw throughout the day? Is that your approach to the word? Do you just read it and study it, but, but throughout the day it really has no impact on you? That's, that's his illustration, that's his concern, but here's the exhortation. And it comes in the form of a question. How can we avoid this deception? How can you avoid the deception of being in the word, but only hearing it and thinking that's sufficient? How can you avoid it? And James is really clear. It's simple. Be a doer of the word. Look, look what he says in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing so the exhortation from the illustration is be a doer of the word don't just hear hear the word and put into practice what you hear and what you believe Put it into practice. Live out the implications of the gospel. Don't just be able to recite the message of the gospel. You know God, man, Christ response. Congrats. Go do what it says. Go do what it says. Be a doer of the word. Transform your Bible reading and study into a quest for greater obedience. Is that how you approach the word? Are you on a quest? How can I pursue righteousness more? How can I obey what I'm reading more? Are you, I mean, is that the content of your prayers? Consider. Or is it just, Lord, reveal yourself to me this morning. I want to know you more. That's an excellent prayer. That's an excellent prayer. But it can't just stop there. What can I do? What do I need to change about myself? Now, if you read the Bible asking yourself, Holy Spirit, please, what can I do? Think about it. If every single person in this room took that approach to their morning Bible reading. First of all, let's assume we all read our Bibles every morning. <laughs> okay, we need to start there. Okay, we, we started reading our Bibles every morning. With the intention of finding something else we could do in response to what we're reading. And then we went to work. And then we went out into our city. If we take this approach, I fully believe that 25,000 unchurched people in Tupelo will see the power of the gospel in us and through us. They will see, see with their eyes. They will experience in conversations and interactions with you they will see the word of the Lord in action because we will be putting what we're hearing into practice. 
We will be doing the word. When you are a doer of the word, you are putting the word, you are putting the gospel on display in your life. And so when, think about it, when your message, what you're saying about the power of Jesus is coupled with your obedience to him, for those who doubt, you can't, you can't just easily write it off anymore. You can't. When you see the power of the gospel in someone's life and then they share with you, this is what I believe, you can't just easily write that off. I truly believe that the Lord will work mightily in us and through us if we resolve to not just be hearers of the word, but to put our faith to work and to seek to be doers of the word. So faith is a gift, but it is active as well. All right, finally, true faith is a gift. True faith is active. And then finally, true faith is both public and private. Let's look at verse 26. We'll cover these last two verses here. A lot of people put these two verses at the center of the entire letter. There are a lot of themes picked up on either side of of these verses. So a lot of people see it as kind of the the center point. Um, Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart... This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And again, James surprises us because you would think, what is pure and undefiled religion? And we, we get the books out. We get the books out and we get the confessions out and we get the creeds out and we're like, well, you got to believe these things. You got you to you believe these things. And then when you believe these things, you'll have pure religion. And he says, no, no, no. Pure religion is stuff that treats people in this way. Okay, so he has two spheres that he's emphasizing here. The public realm, the public sphere, and the private sphere. So what he says first, which is, wow, something that I don't even want to say hardly. It is possible to claim to be a Christian and not be a Christian. I mean, I know, I know some of you probably struggle with assurance more than others. And so I, I really don't want this to, to trigger you into, into unnecessary doubting. But some of us never ask ourselves this question. Am I just claiming to be a Christian? Or am I really a Christian? It's possible to claim to be a Christian and not be a Christian in two ways. First, you seek to love your neighbor without pursuing personal holiness. All right? It's a, you, seek, you seek to love your neighbor without pursuing personal holiness. It's, it's the person who wants to go volunteer down at the Salvation Army but goes home and, and watches porn for two hours. Okay? It's the person who publicly publicly is is on fire for Jesus, but privately couldn't care less about obedience to him. Then there's the second way is, is the reverse. So it's pursuing personal holiness while ignoring our neighbors. So you're on fire for Jesus in your personal quiet time, and yet... You pass by orphans and widows and the destitute and the homeless and you don't care. You don't care. 
in both ways we can deceive ourselves. So I, I don't know where you see yourself struggling more, but there is this hard word from James right, right here at the front in verse 26. The content of our hearts is revealed. That's scary, right? When, when what's on the inside is revealed, where what only you know, you and God are the only ones that know it's revealed. James tells us the content of our hearts is revealed in the control of our tongue and the compassion that we have for those who are in need. The content of your heart is revealed in your tongue and what you say and in your compassion for those who are in need and what you do for others. So let's look at these two spheres and then we'll be done. First, true faith leads to public love for others. True faith leads to public love for others. Privatized Christianity, where you can be a Christian in your private life and no one can touch my private life. I can do what I want. I come to church and I go home and I read the Bible and I pray with my family, but it does not impact or affect what I do at work or how I behave at the grocery store or how I treat other people. That's a myth. Okay, this faith that is a gift to you is a life-giving faith. You are a new creation in Jesus here at home by yourself with other people at the grocery, wherever you are. You are a new creation in Jesus. So this privatized Christianity, it is a myth. We don't get to turn off the new life we have in Christ depending on where we are. You can't turn it off. We are new creations. And... Like it or lump it, the gospel has social implications. Let's read it again, in case you missed it, in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. All right, I promise you there, there's nothing confusing in the Greek. All right? It is what it is. That's what it says. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. True faith leads to compassion for those who are hurting. It leads to compassion for widows and orphans, the helpless, the defenseless, the destitute, unborn babies, the gospel has social implications. That's why we support new beginnings. That's, that's why we support Parkgate. That's why we support the Talbot House. Because we want to be on the front lines of living out the gospel in public, especially with those who are in most dire need. So, Tupelo then, if true faith has public and social implications, Tupelo should be a better place because we are here. It should be a better place because we are here. Because you are a new creation in Jesus and you are living in this city and you are seeking to reveal the content of your changed heart and your compassion for others. People in this city who are hurting should have 170 members in this church feeling compassion for them. So here's a question. 
a great diagnostic question for us all to consider. If we closed up shop after this service, we quit meeting, we just dissolved, would anyone in our city care? I mean, that's, a, that's, an, that's an important question for elders to consider, but for each of us individually as well. If our church stopped gathering, if we just dissolved and went somewhere else, would there be people in our city who would be upset about that? Because of the difference that we're making. All right? True faith leads to this public, public love for others. It leads to compassion and care for those who need it most. All right? But the, the flip side of that, the flip side of that, true faith leads to personal pursuit of holiness. So as we reach out to the world in selfless, sacrificial service and compassion and love, we cannot capitulate our faith to the ways of the world. So don't forsake personal holiness in your pursuit to love your neighbor. So another thing, living for Jesus in public doesn't cover disobedience to Jesus in private. All right? It's not how it works. You can't publicly do all these good works in Jesus' name and privately disobey him and think that your public good works are going to somehow make up the difference for your private disobedience. James, James tells us in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then at the end of verse 27, he says, the other side of pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you pursue, you pursue we pursue personal holiness. What, what James is telling us is it's just as hypocritical to disobey Jesus privately as we care for orphans and widows as it is to obey Jesus privately while ignoring orphans and widows. So, you know, we would consider someone who is privately obeying Jesus but ignoring those in our city who are in need a hypocrite. And others would consider them a hypocrite. But you're just as much a hypocrite if you are caring for those in need and yet not pursuing Jesus in your personal walk. And James is after genuine Christianity. What does it mean to be a genuine Christian? How tragic would it be? Because I want us to. I want us to make a difference in this city. And let's say that we started doing that. How tragic would it be for us to become truly compassionate and making a difference in our city we can't even control our tongues you know we would be deceiving ourselves just as much we would answer that question and say we would there would be a number of people upset if we closed up shop and yet we can't even control our tongues amongst one another walking in the new life we receive in Christ means that we leave our old lives behind okay you leave it behind you leave it behind and you walk in the new life that Jesus has for you. And living, and living for Jesus in this city means pursuing him privately and pursuing those that Jesus pursues publicly. It, it requires both. If, if you have been confronted with sin this morning, here's what I want you to remember. The gospel is for Christians too. Okay, it's not just for those who have never believed in Jesus. The gospel is for you too. 
And Christians aren't those who never sin. That's not who we are. We're not those who never sin. Christians are those who sin and have a particular response to their sin. We confess our sin, we repent from our sin, and we cling to Jesus by faith. No longer, or no, no longer, no matter how long you have been a Christian, Jesus is still your only hope. He's still your only hope. Jesus is our only hope to reach the city, and Jesus is our only hope to pursue personal holiness in our lives. Jesus is our only hope to go from being mere hearers of the word to doers of the word. So I encourage you this morning to cling to him. And there are three ways you can respond to, to James 1, 19 through 27. First, receive the word of the gospel. Receive the word. If you don't know what that means, if you don't know what that looks like, I would love more than anything to talk with you after the service. Just come up to me and say, we need to talk. We can go somewhere and, and talk about it. But receive the word of the gospel that Jesus came and took your place. So you can be reconciled to God by faith in him. The second, resolve to be a doer of the word. Don't leave this place without resolving to do that. Resolve that your Bible study will look different this week. You will not merely hear the word. But you will enter your time of study of the word with a desire and with the resolve to do what it says. And then finally... Ask God to show you, ask God to show our church where you, where we need to change in both your public and private walks with Jesus. How can we love our neighbors better, especially those who are hurting the most? And in what area of your personal walk with Jesus, what area is lacking the most? Where do you need to change? Let's, let's pray together. Father, we can't do any of, any of this apart from your grace. But we see a clear connection here. The only way we can become your people is for you to bring us in. The only way for us to receive the word of the gospel with, by faith is for you to grant it to us. So we praise you and, you and we thank you that you have given us such a beautiful gift which is faith in your son. But Father, James tells us, you tell us in your word, that receiving your word means that we don't just hear it, we do it. So I pray that you would empower us to be both hearers and doers of your word. May we not just look into your word and then forget about it but may we look into your word hungry and thirsty for righteousness and for holiness and for greater conformity to the image of your son and be consumed with it throughout our day may we approach our reading and study of the bible hungry for greater obedience show us what we can do and Father, we do lift up those in our city who are hurting the most. Orphans, widows, homeless, others who are hurting. Father, I pray that you would bring them help and I pray that you would use us to bring them help. 
Father, we're grateful for new beginnings and all of the placements of children that they have and that they have placed children and families in our own midst. Father, I'm thankful for families in our midst who have adopted and who have participated in foster care. May that increase. Forgive us for our neglect of those who are hurting most in our city. And use us however you see fit to care for them. But Father, may we not publicly follow you without privately. So I pray that you would convict us to pursue greater obedience to you when no one else is around. And as the content of of our heart is revealed through what we say, I pray that it would be seasoned with your grace and that you would empower us to use our speech, to use our listening, to use our actions, to glorify your name and to reach the city with our only hope, Jesus. So be glorified and be big in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.